there's probably nothing more painful than seeing a relationship that you thought was forever go wrong. It's really hard for us. In fact, it may be the hardest thing in our lives to have relationships that go wrong. Where we had got to know somebody, that we had developed some sort of uh, level of closeness with that person, and then there's a division, there's a break, there's a separation. It's horrible, it's painful, and, and whether that separation comes from distance of space, where it comes from through death, whether it comes through uh, unforgiveness, no matter what the cause is, the separation is painful. There's a sense that we have that we're meant to be together, and being together means staying together. And I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about in all of life. We, we look around and we see when people don't agree, when people begin to argue and fight and bicker and divide, we see the consequence of that, the consequence on families, the consequence on nations. And so whether that, that, that division, whether that disunity is political or personal or religious, it's always painful. And so we have a desire. We, we know there's something that we know that we, we want us, why can't we just get along? Can't we just be together and get along? In fact, it's interesting because Jesus had, had prayed this in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying to the Father this. He says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of the 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's me and you if we have faith. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus, on the night before he's crucified, his prayer is, is framed around wanting us, as, who, as those who will follow him through the word of the, the apostles, that we would be one. That there wouldn't be division among us. There wouldn't be separation among us. There wouldn't be falling out among us that we would be one. In fact, he, he's praying for this because he's wanting to say, look, there's, he's praying to say, this is what I want, and because this has an impact, because when, when my people relate to each other, commit to each other in this oneness, then the world knows, the world is testified to that I am who I said I am, that God actually sent me. But the truth is that we're not always unified, are we? And one of the reasons we're not unified is because we, we, we misunderstand unity. We, we sometimes see unity as sameness. If everyone would just be exactly the same. But it's not. It's oneness. It's not sameness, but oneness. We also misunderstand because we think unity is something that we need to create. But we see really clearly in these scriptures, in verse, uh, in verse 3, that we're called to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, not create the unity of the Spirit. So it's not sameness, but oneness, and it's not created, but it's kept. It's something we have a responsibility to hold together. And also, I think it's really important because I know what I've done very often is when we talk about Christian unity, I've often kind of settled for just kind of a positional unity in this sense that I believe that the only reason that we're part of God's family is that we are born into it in the sense that we are adopted by God, 
but we are regenerated or born again by the Spirit. So therefore, everyone who's been born again is in the family of God. We have that position regardless of how we relate to each other. But it's more than that. It's not merely positional. It's also relational. This oneness is about us as God's people demonstrating how good our three-in-one God is. This is what it's about. And so when Paul is, is saying these things, he's saying these things as something that's just profoundly important. It's something that, that we need God's Spirit to produce in us. That's why it's called the unity of the Spirit. It's not the uniformity of the Spirit. It's the unity of the Spirit. It's the oneness that the Spirit produces in our lives as He helps us to apply the truth of who God is, the truth of what God's done for us in Christ, to our lives. And so really, the whole chapter is really about how oneness leads to maturity and how maturity leads to bringing glory to God. And so really, from, from verse 1 all the way down to verse 16, Paul's kind of showing how unity and maturity go together. Next week, uh, Joe's going to teach. He'll teach from like verse 7 down to verse 15. He'll talk more about the maturity bits. But I want to talk about the unity bits. Because the, we're commanded right here, according to Paul, to keep the unity of the Spirit. So there's a maintenance call on us. There's a responsibility that we have to, to pursue and maintain this unity that we're given in Christ. So there's requirements on us. So we want to talk about this. I want to talk about three things that are required for us to maintain, to cooperate with the Spirit and maintain this unity that He produces. So I want you to notice first off in verse 1, this word, therefore. Paul says, I therefore. And anytime you see the word therefore in the Scripture, you've got to go back and see, what, wherefore is that therefore, therefore? <laughs> What's it pointing back to? In this case, Paul's not just pointing back to the immediate context of Ephesians 3. He is talking about that. We'll refer back to that in a bit. But he's talking about the whole previous three chapters. Because in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul's been laying out our position in Christ. How that we were chosen before the foundation of the earth in love in Christ. How we've been, we are now seated in Christ in the heavenlies with him. How we've been made one as one family, both Jew and Gentile together, in Christ. This is our position. This is the gift that we've received in the gospel. And now we, what he's wanting to talk about is how we respond to that gift. And so really the first thing we need to, to understand is, when we're talking about unity, we need to understand that what it requires is a surrender of our own individual lifestyle. We can't live as single individuals anymore because we've been adopted into a family. That's what we are required to act like. And that, therefore, is to remind us that we've been adopted as a gift. We're not becoming, we're not sort of earning oneness or trying to produce oneness. We're responding to a oneness we've been given. We're responding in a relational way to the positional oneness. It's a response to the free gift that we have in God. That's what we're talking about. It's interesting because he, he goes on to say, 
in verse 1, he, he describes himself, Paul here describes himself as the prisoner of the Lord. Now, you might remember from the very beginning that, uh, of, of the book of Ephesians that Paul is writing this letter from prison, one of many letters that he wrote from prison. And because of the content and because of the sort of positive nature of the, of the, of the letter, we can kind of forget that he's in prison. And it's not like club fed like it is now where people have color TVs and get to exercise. Not that prison's ever good for anybody. But, but it's not, it was way tougher there. So he's in, he's in a bad place. He's in prison. He's not in a good place. But it's interesting. He doesn't say, I, Paul, the prisoner of Rome. Nor does he say, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jewish persecution. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. In other words, Paul saw his imprisonment as a suffering that God wanted him to experience. Paul, Paul realized that he was in prison because he was faithful to the gospel. He was suffering because he was faithful to Jesus who saved him. So again, this is what we're talking about. If we're talking about a surrendering of our individual lifestyle, it is a gift that we respond to, but it's also it's a suffering that we need to embrace. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, now notice I didn't say a misery that, we, that you embrace. God's not calling you to be miserable. Well, I'm going to follow Jesus. It's always going to be hard. I'm going to suffer for Jesus. No, he didn't call you to a misery. He called you to a suffering. There's a difference. Now, this is not about minimizing the suffering, but it is about recognizing the, the nature of the suffering. So you remember in, in, in Acts chapter 4 when, when the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter, they had been preaching and the re- religious leaders of their day began to persecute them. And what happened? They, they beat Paul and Peter, or sorry, they beat John and Peter and they sort of left them and said, no more preaching in Jesus' name. And they said, well, we're going to still preach in Jesus' name. And they walked away. And what was it says? It says they walked away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They understood that as Jesus followers, it wasn't because of just because of their ministry, but because of the God that they followed, as Jesus followers, they were going to suffer for their faith, and they rejoiced in that. They rejoiced in their suffering because their suffering was based on their identity in Christ. They embraced that suffering. Jesus said, listen, you're going to have trouble in this world, but take heart. One version says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's not minimizing the suffering that we're going to experience. He's saying, I've overcome the suffering. This is even before he was crucified. He says, and I'll be with you through the suffering. But it's also this, because Paul goes on to say, listen, in verse 1, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I'm begging you, I'm prompting you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What calling? We hear that word calling and we usually think, okay, here's my, my calling is to be, in my case, is to be a pastor. I'm called to be a pastor. So we think about our vocation. And we wrestle with and we, 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 we wonder, what's my calling? What am I actually supposed to be doing with my life? But that's not what this is talking about. When Paul's writing to these Ephesian believers, he's talking about the call that Jesus placed on their life, the call that Jesus places on all of our lives. It's a call to follow him. We're called to follow Him. So when we're talking about this surrendering of our individual lifestyle, we're talking about a person that we pursue. 
that we're going after Jesus. It's not just talking about conforming yourself to some sort of religious ideas that everybody seems to agree on. It's about following a person. It's about following the Lord Jesus Christ who's alive, he's risen from the dead. This is important. It's important because uh, we, we need to recognize that this is what really is the first step for us to pursue oneness. The way we become one is to put ourselves, each of us, putting ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus. We recognize it's Him that we want to follow. It's Him that we're pursuing. Jesus said this, listen, Mark 8.35, Jesus says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. You know what the word life is there? It's this word suke. It's a Greek word suke. It's where we get the the English word psychology, or or the word psyche, or your soul. It's the inward part of you that's hard to define. But it's also the part of you that that, uh, is the real you. You are a soul. You have a body. This body is going to be exchanged for a new body. But there's a reality that he's talking about who you are as an individual that Jesus is saying, here's the call he places on every one of our lives. If we're going to call ourselves believers in Jesus, he says, okay, here it is. You need to lose your life. You need to lose your individual identity for my sake and the Gospels. This is where most division comes from. Most of our falling out with each other, most of our friction with each other, I'm talking about Christian among Christians is an unwillingness that we have to simply say, Lord, my life is yours. It doesn't matter if people identify me as I want to be identified. It doesn't matter if people uh, like me. All that matters is that I belong to you. And instead of trying to save my own life, my own reputation, my own pleasures, my own goals, I'm going to lay those all down for you. I want to follow you. Does that sound radical? It does, doesn't it? It sounds pretty radical, and it is. It is, it is in a radical call, but I, you know, understand something? That's normal Christianity. This is what God calls all believers to. If you've been coming to Servant Church for a while, and you've gotten the impression that, yeah, I just gotta, I just gotta believe and come on a Sunday and sing some songs and maybe commit to a small group or maybe commit to serve on a team. If I do those things, everything's fine. That's all that God wants. No, what Jesus came to die for is he came to die for you. He wants you, every bit of you, and he's worthy of every bit of you. And so he calls you to surrender every bit of you to him. That's the normal call. God, it's, it's you. What, what do you want? I, I, I need to follow you. I need to follow you in the in midst of a horrible job. I need to follow you in the midst of a bad marriage. I need to follow you in the midst of wayward kids. I need to follow with you in the midst of, of, of financial ruin. I, I need to follow you. You, Jesus, are worthy to be followed. This is the first step for us to be one is us submitting, submitting to ourselves to God. God, do you, you know, Jesus, you're worthy to be followed after. Paul is saying, listen, I've spent three chapters explaining to you how great this salvation is that God's given you. This free, freely received gift. You receive it freely by faith. You can't ever earn it. 
You don't even keep it necessarily. But this is what I've given you. Now here's your response. Your response is to say, Lord, if you've given me everything I need to life, for life and godliness, then I give you my whole life. Not just Sundays and Wednesday nights. My whole life. This is the first step to unity. Can, can we be honest with ourselves and admit that this is where, this is where the rub gets a bit raw? So last week when we were talking about the power of God and praying for the power of God, and we need to pray for that, I hope as we, you hear this call, you realize, I, I, I can't do this. I don't know that I can surrender my life. I don't know if I can lose my life for His sake. I don't know if I can do this. I hope you remember what we talked about last week. And that reality that God is able to do above what we could ask or think. So that what we're talking about here is a spirit-produced unity. God doing a work in us where we say, Lord, do a work in me that I would surrender all to you. That I would say, Lord, not my will but yours be done on a daily basis. This is hard. No, it's not true. This is impossible. We don't have what it takes to do it. Jesus has called us to a life we can't live. But it's a life that the Holy Spirit will produce in us. Don't you know that this is why you were created? You were created so that you could know your creator, not just as someone out there who made everything and gives us good stuff, but you can know creator as father. And to make that a reality, God clothed himself in human flesh, walked this earth, died on the cross for you, rose from the dead, and sent his spirit so that you could be changed from the inside out, so that you could say, you could sing in truth, I surrender all. That's why he did it. This is where unity comes. It starts, with, it starts with not, gosh, if all you guys would walk with Jesus, then we'd have unity. No, if I would walk with Jesus. If, it starts with me. Me saying, Lord, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. So that's the, the, the first thing. The Spirit wants to work in us that we would learn to surrender our individual lives to Him, our lifestyles to Him. The second thing is this, that he, he wants us to, the Spirit calls us to commit to what I'm going to call Jesus-centered relationships. Look at what he says. He says in verse 2, we do this, we, we walk worthy, and here's what it looks like when we're walking worthy. We walk worthy with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering. Three really important words. Now, lowliness is often translated, probably in some of your Bibles, humility. What's interesting is it actually means literally a humility of mind. But the word lowliness there, this idea of lowliness, it means that it's, it's kind of this picture of a slave who doesn't even look up. Now, now, I'm not saying that's how we should walk and we should walk around with our heads bowed and our eyes looking at the ground and, oh, we're so unworthy. I'm not saying that. But the reason it comes from that is because there was no positive word for humility in the Greek language. There was this word lowliness that talked about somebody who was on the lower ends of society, a slave, who, who was not worthy to look at their master in the eye. But the idea of being humble, the way we see it, we see humility as a good thing, that idea only comes from the gospel, comes from Jesus. 
But it's important to see that when he uses this word lowly, he's using a word that nobody would think would be a term you'd want to put on yourself. No one would ever say, I'm lowly. I'm just lowly. Nobody would say that about themselves. It'd be like an insult. It's like if you say that, people think something's wrong with you. It's kind of like how when people say, I'm just worthless. I'm absolutely worthless. And we go, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. You're not worthless. You're made in Christ's image. You're one for you're made in God's image. You're one for whom Christ died. You're not worthless. That's crazy. So no one would say to them, I'm lowly, unless there was some something not healthy about them. But then listen, Jesus uses this about himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Lowly in heart. Same word as lowliness here. Jesus is saying this to a group of people who are struggling to believe in him. Okay, we, 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 we want to trust you in the Messiah. We see you do all these miracles. We know that if anybody could overthrow the Romans, it's you. You have to be God's chosen king. But then you use language like this. You say you're lowly. You say you come humble, approachable. Now this is important because this is, Paul's wanting to use this term lowliness. To, he's wanting to apply this term, we'll see obviously in the context, at how we approach each other, how we deal with each other. In a very real sense, when Jesus says this in this context, right, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, come to me, I'm, uh, you know, I'm lowly in mind. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, I'm going to put your needs above mine. That's what a servant does. A servant puts your needs above mine. I, I find that people often miss church for a couple different reasons. Not, not counting the snow. <laughs> Sometimes they miss church because they just feel like, you know what? I'm not, you know, I, I'm just, I'm tired, I'm burned out, and I just don't have what it takes to go and serve there today. And so they skip church because it just feels like too much work. Or they skip church because they think, you know what? I'm just not getting anything out of it. No one seems to be meeting my needs there. And both those attitudes are wrong. What Paul's saying here is that our attitude towards each other as, as believers, the, 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 what, what's going to move us towards this oneness that we have in Christ, what's going to mature us that way, is that we have, we learn to think like Jesus. And the way Jesus thought was he comes to this earth thinking their needs are more important than mine. He serves that way. This is, this is what's amazing when we experience this. There's some really cool testimonies from last week. Uh, I won't say who they were because I didn't ask for permission, but uh, someone came forward, it was needing some prayer, but they felt a bit intimidated because there, there wasn't someone of the same gender to pray with. They weren't sure what they were going to do. And then someone of the same gender came up, they needed some prayer. And they were kind of waiting for someone to be available for them to pray with. And so what had happened is these two people ended up praying together and just ministering to each other. And you got, you, there was a sense that they were both kind of going, well, you need prayer. Yeah, well, you need prayer. Well, I want to pray for you. Well, I want to pray for you. Not like, well, can I go first? I was here first, and I want to go pray with them, you know? No, we're going to pray together. We're going to esteem someone else's needs as greater than our own. This is what makes fellowship sweet when we think this way. This other word he uses, gentleness, is probably better translated meekness. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5? Remember, blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. So when he's talking about inheriting the earth, he's talking about God's big plan. 
Who are the meek? Well, the meek, the word for meek there, translated gentleness here, is a word that means, it's, 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 a, it's a word that's often used about domesticated animals. A horse or a cow is stronger than us, but we control it. It's strength under control. So, so meekness here, or gentleness, is the idea of, you know what, I'm going to be, I could choose to do what I want to do, but instead I'm going to choose to do what God's want to do. I'm going to put God's agenda before my agenda. God's agenda above your own. That's gentleness or meekness. He uses this term long-suffering. I love that term. I love that word, long-suffering, because it means what it says, you suffer for a long time. This is a word that simply means that you're willing to endure with somebody's weaknesses. So we all get frustrated with each other, whether we want to admit that. We get annoyed with each other. I can't stand when that person worships the way they do, or I hate the way that person prays, or that person doesn't control their kids, or that person is too strict with their kids, or that person always runs the coffee line first, and there's never enough decaf left for me. Why can't that leadership team get the church to start on time? We all get annoyed with each other. We laugh because it's true. Long-suffering, listen, long-suffering means I want to have, I want to think like Jesus. Jesus said, your needs are above mine. Jesus said, I'm about God's agenda, not my own. Jesus said, I want your growth above my comfort. How long did Jesus long suffer with disciples who didn't get what he was saying half the time? Think about it. Jesus says, I want to plant my church, and so I'm going to do is I'm going to gather 12 guys, and I'm going to train them for three and a half years to plant my church. And after three and a half years, you know what they do? One betrays him, so he gets crucified. The rest run away. Talk about long-suffering. Oy. But what did he do with those 11 that were left? He fills them with his Holy Spirit and changes the world. How did, that, how did he get to that point? He was long-suffering. What are we called to be? Long-suffering. We have weaknesses, guys. And I love the fact that he says here, too, this is, it's not just about learning to think like Jesus, but it's also learning to carry burdens like Jesus because he says in the second part of verse 2, he says, um, bearing with one another in love. One another. You know what this is implying when he uses the term one another? It means this. It means there's times when I'm going to be carrying and there's times when I need to be carried. And guess what? Those times are usually both in the same service, both in the same gathering, both in the same day. See, what happens is in our pride, we don't want to be carried. No, 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 I got this. I got this. I can walk. I, 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 don't, I don't need someone to carry me. Or in our pride, we think only I can carry everyone. Instead of recognizing that we're really pretty much all in the same boat, we need the Holy Spirit to work in us so that we're committed to, e to each other so that we can bear one another's burdens. This is, how unity is, this is how unity is produced. This is how we grow in unity. We actually bear one another's burdens. You know what makes this impossible when we don't want to know each other? I'm going to jab at you. Ready? I'm warning you. I'm going to jab at you. When you refuse to put a name tag on, on Bring and Share Sunday, or you hide it under your jacket. What's up with that? Scarf. Or a scarf. Oh, I don't want anybody to know my name. Why? Because I'm about privacy. Yes, I'm teasing you a little bit. It's a very much a cultural thing. 
And it's, but it's a cultural thing that you have to get over, just like I have loads of cultural things that you are all aware of that I have to get over. We need to know each other. When we don't want to be known, no one's going to carry, be able to carry our burdens. When we don't want to know, we're not going to be able to carry somebody's burdens. We need to know and be known. This is how the Spirit produces maturity that leads to unity in us. This is what we're commanded to have. This is the mindset we're commanded to have. Listen to this, Philippians chapter 2. I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I like the way it paraphrases. It says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than, ours, than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This is why we call them Jesus-centered relationships. Lord, I want to learn to think like you, Jesus. I want to learn to carry burdens like you, Jesus. And interesting, too, you know, Jesus allowed people to carry his burdens. Did you ever think about that? The Bible says specifically, it says that it names some of the women, that many of whom were named Mary, very popular name, Miriam. Um, and he names them, saying that these were those who walked with Jesus and met his needs. In other words, they, they did a lot of the cooking. A lot of these ladies were wealthy. They supported his ministry. It also, we also see this picture of Jesus when he's wanting to, to reach somebody, the woman at the well, John chapter 4. What does he do? He says to the woman, could you give me something to drink? He lets her meet his need. Why? Because in doing so, he gets his need met, and she gets her need met, which is she needs living water. Do you see how this works? Bearing one another's burdens? This is normal Christianity. So committing to Jesus-centered relationships, it means that we're learning to think like Jesus, it means we're carrying burdens like Jesus, but also it means that we actually pursue peace with others because of Jesus. Look what he says again in verse 3. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in what? In the bond of peace. Peace. Peace means I don't want anything between me and you. I want us to be at peace. It means a full restoration of relationship. I know of a church in the city, again, I will not name that church, but there's a church in the city that's been around for well over 50 years, and that church struggled for years and years and years, decades. You know why? Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Unforgiveness. A whole congregation stifled in its witness the life strangled out of the whole congregation. Why? Because someone didn't want to repent and someone else didn't want to forgive. They're not pursuing the unity of the, the pursuing to keep the unity of the spirit. They're not pursuing peace with others. Here's why we pursue peace with others. Listen to this, okay? Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. Because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. God accepts us in Jesus. God forgives us because of Jesus. God calls us into his family and receives us as sons and daughters because of Jesus. When we sin on a daily basis and we turn back to God and we say, God, forgive me for that sin, 
He forgives us still because of Jesus. Which is why the scripture says to us, if it is possible, as, if it is possible, as, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Man, if you, listen, if you are holding something against somebody here, you need to forgive them. Whether you know them super well or you've just met them, whether you're really close to them or you're not close to them all, if you're holding something against them, you need to forgive them. If you say, yeah, well, I can't forgive them because they refuse to admit that they were wrong. Well, maybe you need to do a few things. Maybe you need to take this beam out of your own eye make sure that you're seeing things correctly. Maybe you need to humble yourself to them and just say, listen, I just want us to be right. Can we just be right and move forward? But listen, if we're going to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us, we need to learn to pursue peace with one another. We are naturally going to gravitate to people that are in the same stage of life as us, have the same kind of background as us, and that's okay. That's not bad by itself. That's okay. But it's not okay for us to split away from people because I just don't like them or they hurt my feelings or they annoy me. You need to be at peace. And if you know you're the person that somebody has something against, the onus is on you, according to Jesus, to go to that person and say, you know what, I, I know that you're angry at me. I just need to ask for your forgiveness. I want everything to be right between us. This is what it means to be committed to Jesus-centered relationships. This is what the Holy Spirit has to produce in us. It's tough because sometimes I'm not sure if somebody has something against me, to be honest. Now, I know I can easily offend people, and I, I don't, that's not a false humility, it's just a fact. I know that. I'm verbose, I'm big, I'm loud, so I can offend people. I, I, kn- I have strong opinions about things. Uh, I know that God's called me to lead. I'm not afraid to lead. Sometimes, though, I lead like a bull in a china shop. I'm confessing that as sin. But sometimes I think, that the person that I maybe have done that with, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it's fine, it's fine. Okay, maybe it is fine. I'm not sure if it is fine. Sometimes I don't know. You know, I, I want to know. Now, I, I appreciate if you didn't bombard me right after service, all of you coming up at the same time, that would be hard. Send me an email or something. But <laughs> the whole congregation comes forward. That, that might be too hard for me to handle. But, you know, maybe one at a time, that would be nice. But if there is that, you know, I, I want people to come and say, you know, I, you hurt my feelings when you do this, when you say these things, when you act this way. Because I, I, I want your forgiveness. I want us to walk as one. So the spirit produced unity, it's a surrender of our individual lifestyles, a commitment to Jesus and our relationships, but also, listen, it also needs to be a demonstration of our theological convictions. Oh no, he said theological. He's trying to wax smart again. I hate when he does that. Forgive me, be patient. I use the word theological because you need to know every single one of you today already does theology. You might not be aware of it, but you already do theology. You know what theology means? Theology means knowledge of God. Theos, God, ology, knowledge. Logos, knowledge. Theology. 
the knowledge of God. The big issue is, one, we want to make sure our theology is correct. Do we have good theology? Is our theology of our, is our, our, our ideas about God based on what God has said about himself? Or are they our own ideas? Now, the reason I'm saying this is because this is exactly what Paul's doing. Paul, in verses 4 to 6, many people think he might be reciting the creed that the early church would have done, so the very first followers of Jesus would often, as you see in a lot of uh, sort of more traditional churches, this is something that has happened from the very beginning. A lot of churches would actually state a creed together. So they'd come together, they'd sing a hymn or something, and then they would all, out of memory, say, I, like the song we sang, Creed, they would say that from memory. I believe this, I believe that. And it, was a, it was a confirmation, it was a, re, uh, uh, a reaffirmation of what they actually believed, what, what they believed made them one. And so some people believe this is what Paul's saying, but it's interesting the way he says this. Quickly, I want to do this really quick. Paul says in verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope. Now here's what's interesting, because he's talking about now this reality of what the Holy Spirit does. When he says there's one body, he's referring to the body of Christ. And according to 1 Corinthians 12, everyone who's put their faith in Jesus when they've been born again, they are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit places us into this body, into this living organism. Not an organization, but an organism. He places us into that. It's the Holy Spirit who does this work. And only the Holy Spirit can do this. We can't actually choose to be born again. And that might step on your toes, but we can't say, Lord, I said, I want to be born again done. Everything should be sorted now, right? No. What we choose to do is respond to the Holy Spirit and say, God, I, I recognize you're convicting me of my sin. I'm guilty before you, and you're showing me I need Jesus, so I confess I need Jesus. God, would you save me? God's response to the prayer of faith, save me, is to cause us to be born again. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are born by the Spirit into God's family. That's the order I see it in, at least. This is what God does. So we're put into the body by the Spirit. There's one body. There might be many local expressions of that. I don't know how many evangelical churches there are in, 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 in Norwich, or how many churches there are, but there's a lot. And we may be different expressions of that, but all of us collectively are one body. All of us around the world who, who, whom the Holy Spirit has put into the body. When the Holy Spirit is made alive, all of us are one body. And he says, we all have one hope with which you were called. What's the hope? It's the hope of eternal life. Remember, hope is not like, wow, gee, I hope it works out, but it's an expectation of good. I expect that I'm, when res Jesus resurrects me, I'm going to be resurrected to life eternal. I expect that. That's my hope. Who's going to do that work of resurrection? According to Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit in us who brings resurrection. Now, why is this important? Because I believe Paul's not just kind of randomly throwing things together. All that we have in these things together in verse 4 all speak of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the necessity of the Holy Spirit. So that when we're talking about unity, we're talking about us actually not just going, okay, that makes sense. I think I believe that. I have my head around that theological idea. We're not talking about that. We're talking about 
living according to that reality, demonstrating the necessity of God's Spirit. Let me tell you how this works. Listen to this. This is Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul writes, How foolish can you be after starting new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own, own human efforts? In other words, if we, as we sang in that song Creed, believe that we're birthed into God's family by the Spirit, we're adopted by the Holy Spirit into God's family, if we believe that, why do we think we're going to finish the work? If we believe the Holy Spirit's work is absolutely necessary, then we should act like it. We should say, okay, Lord, you've got to do this work in me. If God can do the miracle, if God the Spirit can do the miracle of bringing you into God's family, can God the Spirit do the miracle of making sure you get all the way to the end? Absolutely. He goes on to say in verse 5, he says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Here I think he's switching from the necessity of the Spirit to the sufficiency of the Son. When he says, listen, when he says one Lord, who's the Lord? Jesus. How do we know that? How can we say that with conviction? Because of the work of the Spirit. <laughs> it's only by the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, that we can confess and believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is, is Lord. But he's Lord. To say Jesus is Lord, you know what that means? It means he's the controller. He rules my life. One Lord, notice, listen, one faith. That's not just one act of believing. It's talking about one, one focus of our faith. According to Hebrews chapter 12, the author and finisher of our faith is Jesus. He says there's one baptism. Interesting, there's actually five baptisms referred to in the, in the Scriptures, which is another issue, but it's interesting. When he says one baptism, what's he talking about? I think it's really clear he's talking about water baptism because this is why I believe this, okay? Water baptism, according to Romans chapter 6, when we are baptized, we are baptized into Christ, identifying with Christ. Now, I don't believe you have to be water baptized to be saved. I think you need to be saved before you're water baptized. That's my conviction, okay? But everyone believes that we need the Spirit to baptize us into God's family and that we are called to be baptized in water. Every, every church believes that. Every Christian church believes that. If they don't believe that, they may not be a Christian church. Every church believes that. We need to be baptized. Now, here's the issue. When we're baptized, according to Romans chapter 6, we are baptized in the Christ. We're baptized into his death, and we're baptized into his resurrection. That's what we're representing. We go down in the water, being, having died with Christ. We come out of the water, having been resurrected with Christ. That's the picture of baptism. That's what it's for. Now, all these things point to the Son, sufficiency of the Son. In other words, listen, if we actually believe what we sang, what we read right here, that there is just one Lord Jesus, He calls the shots. There is one faith, it's in Christ and what He's done, what He's done for us in His death, resurrection, ascension, and His soon return. There is one baptism that is believers identifying with Christ, that they are one with Him. And we're declaring the sufficiency of the Son, and we should demonstrate that by making much of Jesus. How much of our life or even our church services can be about making much of us? Whether that says, aren't we great, or you are so bad, you better start getting it right. Either way, we're making much of us. But what we need if we're going to have unity is making much of Jesus. Again, listen to what Paul says 
in Galatians chapter 6. Listen to this. Paul writes, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. Do you know why our tagline for our church is, it's all about Jesus? Do you know why it is? That, that's our tagline. Anybody know? Because it's all about Jesus. Not just our church, life. Our existence, it's, it's all about Him. It's about what He's done to make us right with God. It's about what He's done so that we can enjoy God forever. It's enough. What He's done is enough. What the Holy Spirit is doing now is just taking what, God, what Christ has already done and applying it to our lives. We are one in Christ. The Holy Spirit is producing a maturity in us so that we demonstrate that oneness. We're one because of Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and His soon return. So the, the, the necessity of the Spirit, the sufficiency of the Son, these are our theological convictions. In the last bit, verse 6, the supremacy of the Father, or the fact that the Father is over all. When he says in verse 6, one God and Father of all, here's what he's saying. He's saying, okay, there might be many gods out there, little g, that people worship, but as far as we're concerned, there's one God. He's the Father. He's over all. There's one God over all. There might be many gods that we form with our hands or with our minds, but there's actually just one true God. He is who He says He is, not who we imagine Him to be. There's one God. He's supreme. Have you been in a relationship where somebody was trying to control you and somebody wanted you to do always what they wanted you to do and you get so frustrated with that, you just kind of think, back off, who do you think you are? What's implied by the question, who do you think you are? It's implied that you think that you somehow have a right to rule over me? Who has a right to rule over all but the God who's made all? Sometimes when I'm talking to, to people about, uh, about the Christian faith, I'm in a conversation. Uh, if I know I don't have a whole lot of time, it's maybe a stranger and stuff, and they'll say, ah, I don't believe in God, it's rubbish. And I say, well, l- let's just think about this, okay? If there's a God, can you change who He is? Well, no, of course not. Yeah, so if there's a God, He's overall, He can do whatever He wants. Well, I guess, yeah, He's God. He can do whatever He wants. All right. So if there's a God, it's automatic, he can do whatever he wants. You know what our hope is? Is that he's good. Because if there's a God, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He is God over all. Our hope is that he's good. Do you know what we have in Jesus? We have proof that God is good. God's good. He's the God over all. And I love this because he's not a God who's distant, but look what it says, verse 6. One God and Father who is over all, who is above all, that means no other authority can can usurp his authority, and through all, that is, he's working things together for good, and in you all, that the Father dwells with us in some mysterious way through the Holy Spirit. When you come to church, or you go to house group, or you go to a prayer night with a group of believers, or whatever the case might be, or when you're just gathered with other Christians, and you're wanting to actually to fellowship, to actually share God with each other. Do you have that sense that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14? Surely God is in this place. Because that is the fact. And when we pursue this spirit 
produce unity. When we say, all right, Lord, I want to surrender my life and I want to lay down my life for yours. Lord, I want to commit to these relationships. I want to know and be known. And Lord, I, I want to live out, I want to demonstrate what I know I believe about who you are. When we do that, you know what happens? Strangers come into our midst who don't even know yet God, don't even know God yet, and say, Surely God is in this place when we live like this. Can you see why Paul is making it clear? This is what's this is the first response. <laughs> you, you need to pursue this kind of unity. It's kind of real unity. I recognize I haven't answered at all the issue of the fact that there's different denominations or the divisions between religious groups in, among the world, Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, you know, divisions within Islam, divisions with, between us and Islam. I haven't answered any of those things specifically. The reason is those are whole other Bible studies. <laughs> but also, listen, do you know where this kind of spirit-produced unity starts? Right here. Right here. You know, it's not about a structure. Gee, if we can just do some sort of thing together as churches, then we'll have unity. No. That's trying to create unity. We do stuff with churches. We love doing stuff with churches. But what we need to pursue is this kind of unity. You know what? I really truly believe if, if we as a as servant church would mature in this kind of spirit-produced unity, if we matured in this, you know what we'd also have? More fellowship with other good churches. It would be natural. We, it's not th- about them becoming like us or us becoming like them. It's about all of us becoming like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. If we would pursue this. 